What do you know about the economics of a zombie apocalypse? Today's guest leverages cultural topics and familiar storylines to bring home economic concepts to students. Dr. Brian Holler is a professor of economics at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, and he's lived the remarkable life of both an engineer and an attorney. He is also one of my co-leaders for the Munich Bible Study. Brian has traveled widely, guiding his students through the complex issues of economics. And as a believer in Jesus, he's focused much of his research on the connection between economics and Christian faith. Dr. Brian Holler is with us today to share his faith journey and the direct impact it has had on his field of study. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church on Sundays as a kid, and don't really remember time not believing in God. Uh, that I, When I was young, you know, it was a very naive faith. I mean, I, I still think my faith is naive in a lot of ways. Uh, maybe all of ours is. Uh, but uh, when I was a young kid, I always remember feeling kind of like God was there, that he was present. And I couldn't have articulated the gospel, but it, it still, I think, was a sincere faith. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, becoming a Cub Scout, a Boy Scout later on. That kind of reinforced ideas of reverence and cheerfulness and doing good to others. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really until I went through, I grew up in a Methodist church. It wasn't until I went through confirmation that I really started questioning my faith. You know, is this really what I believe or not? And I didn't want to get up in front of the church saying I believe something that I didn't. And I think through that process... Probably the best I can say it is at the beginning, I was unsure, and at the end, I uh, felt uh, confident, comfortable through prayer, through meditation, through thinking about things. Um, I can't say it was like a you know organized, intentional process, but just at the end of that process, uh, I felt like I could say that I believed. I think even then, it wasn't something that it wasn't until I got to college that I think I, I got started getting involved with some college groups. I started going to a Baptist church in college, and that's where I felt like I could first articulate what, like, actually articulate the gospel. And that's when I really started. The one thing I'll credit the Baptist with is uh, helping me view Scripture as God's Word. Um, Okay. You know, I think I would have said that, assented to that beforehand, but they are the group that challenged me, like, you know, well, have you ever read through the Bible on your own? And I'm like, well, why do I need to do that? I know all the stories. I heard them in Sunday school, and I realized, no, I didn't really know <laughs> everything no. in there. Let me go to the next question. Um, your career areas, you have an amazing variety of careers, three at least, right? Uh, kind of, yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I think I know where how you're framing that, but yeah. Yeah, walk, walk us through that, would you? Yeah, so I started off uh, life, I guess, my professional life as an uh, engineer uh, when I was in college. I studied uh, mechanical engineering as an undergrad. I was always interested in technology and gizmos and gadgets growing up. I still am, and uh, ing- I was always, always in, which was, yeah, they're a ton of fun. And I was always uh, always enjoyed math and science, and so uh, you know the three things I thought about as a uh, doing as a career when I went to college were either being an engineer, being a physics teacher in high school, or becoming a veterinarian because I love animals. And engineering seemed like a good pathway because it, it kind of opened up all three. And so I studied uh, mechanical engineering, got. Uh, started working for several companies, a couple in college, IBM and DuPont, and then later on. My first job out of college was with uh, Westinghouse in the power industry. 
Oh. And I was with them for five years, Mitsubishi in the power industry for another six years, did a lot of cross-cultural work with uh, going to Japan and working with uh, a lot of Japanese colleagues. And that was a very rich experience just uh, culturally. Yeah, and towards the uh, around the time I started working for Mitsubishi, I started getting into sales, marketing and project management. So we went to get a uh, MBA uh, part-time at the University of Florida and uh, just figured I was getting into a lot of more on the business side. And that's where I uh, kind of, quote unquote, discovered economics and um, just fell in love with it. A friend of mine told me it was the physics of business and that I should read up on it. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a fantastic phrase uh, that I should read up on it before going to uh, start my MBA. He had his MBA. Yeah. And when I was reading up on it, I just felt like scales were falling off my off my eyes. I saw this order to the world that I'd never seen before. And I was just totally oh. fascinated by it. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm like, why, why, why did nobody ever teach me to think this way before? No one um, ever even suggested that to me. I didn't. I was it was re, very, very remote to me. I couldn't even think about it. But I wish they had now because uh, I listen to people like Thomas Sowell and a lot of others. And uh, see the the breadth that it gave to his his intellectual background and, and an understanding of history and so on. But what about attorney? Weren't you also an attorney in there somewhere? Yeah. So uh, part of what got me interested in econ was uh, when, when I was um, working as an engineer, I did a trip with my church down to Haiti. And huh? I was just absolutely heartbroken. And it was my first time ever seeing extreme poverty and absolutely heartbroken yeah. seeing the living conditions people were living under. And so I, you know, when I came home, I like felt guilty about everything I had, wanted to give it all away. And of course, <laughs> that doesn't do them a bit of good. No. But, I, you know, I was living in Florida at the time, and Florida and Haiti are pretty close. I'm like, why is Florida so rich and Haiti so poor? And I never had a framework for thinking about that till I started reading up on economics. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the explanation, kind of tying this back into law, is uh, property rights and rule of law. Are a huge part of that, you know. Just uh, you know, do people know who owns what? You know, are the rights that they have to their mm -hmm. property secure? You know, if you if you can't, uh, kind of the way I put it is, you're never going to remodel your kitchen if you're not sure you can keep your house. Yeah, and yeah, and so it's it. Uh, it seemed like um, studying law. George Mason, where I went to grad school, had a joint program, a law and PhD program in economics. And so I applied, oh. I was already in the PhD program and applied for the law program as well and ended up getting in, uh, kind of joke in retrospect, maybe I should have just read a book. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, I'm a, a official, uh, licensed attorney in the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia now. Oh, how cool. Yeah. And so I've, I've never, I've only had a three or four clients since I've always been, you know, like friends in grad school getting in trouble with something relatively minor, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So oh. I like to tell people I'm equally experienced in all areas of the law, which is approximately zero. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, wow. Yeah. It's still impressive, impressive background. Well, thank and you. They, and they all sound interesting. I mean, every one of those sounds interesting to me. Um, and I had, I had lots of other things too, before I went into ministry by call. And one of them was a veterinarian. I really wanted to be one of those. Yeah, oh, I never knew that. Other, yeah, oh yeah. Still love animals. Just unbelievable. Well, let's talk about faith and family. You have you've done a lot of work there about uh, how uh, economics and faith and family tie together. A uh, few few thoughts there. Yeah. So I, I should preface uh, one thing when when I talk about um, economics, I tend to think of it very broadly as a social science, 
And that if I were to summarize it just into one sentence, it would be the study of how people respond to incentives. And so when I think about family, uh, like I've done some work on marriage, divorce, and how it relates to church attendance. And Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking in terms of how have incentives changed within society. So those incentives don't have to be purely necessarily financial. It could be other things. Certainly finances are one component of it, but just not exclusively that. Um, My dissertation research looked at the how uh, rates and stability of marriage uh, related to church attendance. And I've heard, uh, you know, just in churches over the years, many pastors saying that uh, Christians, uh, for example, divorce at the same rate as non-Christians, different things like this. And that's not entirely incorrect, but it's not entirely correct either. And I'll I'll explain that in that in the U.S., you know, roughly um, back in the 1970s, about 90 percent of Americans identified as being Christian. Today, that's down to about 70 percent, but it's still always been a majority of the population. Mm -hmm. And so if you use that self-reported number, uh, you know, am I Christian or not? Then it's not surprising that, uh, you know, if you're talking about marriage, divorce, any of these statistics, that the average of the majority, you know, of a large majority, say 80 percent of your population is pretty close to the average of the 100 percent of the population. But um, what what I did in my research is I looked at try to control for church attendance like we were talking about before. That's a very good metric for religiosity or the best we've come up with mm-hmm. uh, a common one. And what we find is that uh, about half of the people who identify as Christian tend to attend church two to three times a month or more. Uh, and kind of in my mind, that's enough where you start building up, uh, you know, an economist term, social capital within your group, uh, within your church, within your community. Uh, it just means uh, social connections, ties, friendships, bonds, sure. things like that. And when we look at that, you know, it's about half of that. Uh, it's remarkable. It's almost exactly half of those who report being Christian. So in the 70s, it was about 45 percent of the population. Today, it's about a third of the U.S. population. But for those demographics, marriage rates are much, much higher and divorce rates are much, much lower than the general population. Um, so the higher the commitment, the lower the divorce rate. Well, so I, I want to say I want to be careful in answering that because the the, the work that I've done just kind of breaks it into two groups. And so those who attend on a regular basis, divorce, uh, by regular basis, I mean two to three times a month or more frequently, uh, the, that's the group that um, marries at higher rates and uh, divorces at a lower rate than those who attend once a month or less frequently. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's the way I want to, um, you know, whether or not it's an interesting question, and it's probably correct that the more frequently people attend church, the more likely they are to marry, less likely to divorce. But I can't yeah, say correlated that. Correlated but not cause necessarily, right? Well, I, th- I think there's causal influence there, but I, I don't want to state more than what I've been able to, what I've investigated myself. And that's maybe yeah. me being, okay. uh, you know, too much an academic, but I just want to be careful with what I, what yeah, I claim. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Good for you. Yeah. That's what we want. How would you read, this is more of a general question here, how would you read university students today regarding uh, faith, particularly Christianity? How, how does that that's, happen in your, your experience? Yeah, that's a very good question. There's certainly like, uh, you know, at my university, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, fairly active, I, I, I teach at a Catholic school. So there's definitely a lot of, mm-hmm. okay, um, different. it's a little bit different. Uh, we actually have a 
Um, I teach at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. We're a Catholic university, and we have um, a lot of Catholic students, a lot of Muslim students, and a fair amount of Protestant, and also a good mix of students who would identify as maybe nun, atheist, agnostic. Um, and so I'd say it's pretty uh, – at my university, is probably not representative of the general colleges uh, across the U.S. We have a um, – the New York Times had an article a few years ago talking about Catholic University and Marymount University in the D.C. area having a large number of Muslim students because it's uh, hmm. Catholic schools are schools where faith is taken seriously, but uh, where people are unlikely to be proselytized. And so uh, because of that, Muslim parents uh, you know, tend to be a little bit maybe more socially conservative than a lot of mm-hmm. other universities, and yeah. so Muslims, Muslim parents really like sending their kids to uh, to Catholic schools in the U.S., which is that, I found really really fascinating. Yeah, that is that's very interesting. Like in India, uh, my wife's from India, and uh, the Christian schools attracted a huge number of, of Hindus and everybody else because they they was it was the quality that they were going to get at that school. I'm assuming it's the same thing or much the same there. Yes, yeah. What uh, is it? A large percentage of Muslims are going there, or is just a measurable? group uh, it's fairly large percentage I, i'm blanking on the exact amount i could uh find out after the uh the podcast and let you know <laughs> okay <laughs> uh but it's uh we do have a lot of students from saudi arabia from uh united arab emirates uh and just uh uh lots of international students are you know certainly the pandemic has um impacted the ability of international students to come to the u.s but i think that's uh starting to let up a lot hey. Okay. And traditionally, I'd say probably at least maybe ten percent, if not more, of our students would fall into that category. Oh wow! Uh, so it's that pretty, is, that pretty is large very, number. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I'm going to learn more about that. Kind of an off the wall yeah. question here, but not for you. Um, what do you learn? What do we learn from zombies? Oh gosh, uh, yeah. So I. <laughs> Uh, I wrote a couple chapters in a book called The Economics of the Undead, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show The Walking Dead. I've seen um, part of it once. Yeah, so it's it's uh, that's certainly not for everybody, but I used uh, – some friends of mine got me hooked on that uh, years ago, and so I used some storylines from that to – as kind of thought experiments about just, you know, how would uh, – how would what do zombies – what does kind of the the – world of zombie apocalypse teach us about economics and teach us about law mm-hmm. and uh like in the tv show i'm trying not to give too many spoilers but one of the <laughs> first things people try to do you have a total collapse of society so um uh, economists measure the um you know how well an economy is doing based on how much goods and services that economy produces and that sounds very sterile i wish we had different language for that because it's a Super important concept, you know, like, a, you know, it's it sounds like very sterile. But if we think about things that, uh, you know, like parents want for their kids, good health, good education, mm-hmm. um, safe shelter, things like that, all of these things have to be produced somehow. And this is part of what gets captured in um, GDP or GDP per capita. If we talk about standards of living. And so if you if you have it's a super important concept and it, it talks a lot about how how well people are able to flourish and just, uh, you know, live out, maximize the potential of their lives, I guess, is one way to think about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the zombie apocalypse, of course, uh, society breaks down, uh, not, hardly anything is being produced. And so in the show, people are like raiding, uh, you know, the houses of people who have turned into zombies and 
they uh, aren't producing much and they're kind of just, you know, more or less hunters and gatherers. And eventually the, the tendency that people have in the show, which is what you see in real life, is people want to uh, form into groups. And a big part of forming into groups, we're social creatures for sure. Uh, but it also allows us to start specializing. And the more we specialize, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe you're the leader and I'm the uh, I'm the night guard or something like that, you know, and uh, uh, some people go out and fight the zombies. Other people uh, cook the food as you get more people specializing more and more within these groups. Uh, collectively, they're able to produce more than they could if they were each doing it uh, individually. Oh, I and see. So this, yeah. Yeah. And so this is like one lesson that you get from the zombie uh, environment. You know, there's a lot of a, the what's in the show is very fanciful, but there's also a lot that echoes what we see in human experience. If you talk about sure. like survival stories or uh, things that have actually happened in human sure. history. Uh, there's a lot of parallels, and it, it shows just kind of the the power of working together. And there's a lot of this that's captured in Adam Smith, uh, Wealth of the Nations. He's yeah, kind yeah. of considered the, the grandfather of economists. Yeah. And um, uh, the chapter I wrote on that was uh, called Truck Barter and Eat Your Brains, which kind of uh, play on to Truck Barter and Exchange, which is a passage from his book. But that's one thing. And another thing is just kind of asking ourselves, how would – law evolve in a zombie apocalypse and uh you know just kind of uh, uh kind of the, the in the show you also see people seeking to have some kind of social order we don't want just pure chaos we want rules for how those groups organize and there is a very strong um uh tendency for people when we form into groups to try to come up with rules that we uh follow that we um uh, you know, that, that just helps to make society more stable and easier to navigate. And I think mm -hmm. the show does a really good job showing that. And I think a lot of the laws that we have now uh, in the zombie apocalypse, you'd have a big change in the uh, the cost of law enforcement, uh, the cost of punishment. Um, but the the laws as we have them framed today, you know, like theft would still be theft. Uh, murder would still be murder. So a lot of the laws... Mm -hmm could survive into the zombie apocalypse, but you'd have a big change to civil and criminal procedure because you couldn't, you couldn't have like, you know, five people sitting on a jury trial for 10 days when you got zombies chasing after you. So <laughs> uh, justice yeah, would be I find very, that really difficult. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but justice would be very quick and very severe. And when I was writing that, um, I, you know, that's kind of the conclusion of my thought experiment thinking about zombie apocalypse. And that actually matches a lot of human history. Where I think uh, today, you know, we look back on, you know, people maybe in the 1500s or even earlier, the Roman times, and they're um, think about them as just being very, very brutal. Um, but part of it could be that they were just constrained with resources and that constraint of the resources caused a very different manifestation of law and justice than we, what we might hmm. have today. I notice here that you, you draw films and media into your lectures uh, have you ever used a, a zombie film in one of your lectures or part of one? So I have not used, I, I will talk about it, but I have not used zombie films per se. I tend to stick with, uh, stuff that's a little more PG, uh, you know, stuff that's not yeah, going to be yeah, yeah. too, uh, I've used hunger games a lot. So that's, that's, uh, oh, something that gets yeah, into yeah. some, uh, you know, it has a little more violence, but you don't see the, <laughs> what you see in some of the zombie movies. But I, uh, yeah, I used to teach a class to freshman students using like sci-fi and fantasy stories to 
try to get basic economic principles across. That would uh, work, I think, yeah. Because when, yeah. when they get that, that stage, they're probably overjoyed to see a, a good, exciting movie as part of a lecture. I mean, it's uh, never, I never got that in the old days. Right, right. Neither did I. Neither did I. No. I just yeah. want to make sure I get one final question in here, and that's the, it's your choice. Is there anything that you wish you had said after we hang up here? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would encourage... Um, any of your listeners, if they're interested, um, I, I definitely have some book recommendations. But just the, the the thing I would encourage folks to do is just to try to learn a little bit about economics. So they really do think it uh, enhances thinking about the world. It, it uh, There's a lot that applies to ministry if you're thinking in terms of, um, you know, one of the big ideas in economics is just the study of unintended consequences and just how certain policies, certain ministries that we might try to pursue can have consequences that we don't fully intend, sometimes positive and sometimes tragically negative. And I think the more we understand economics and the role of incentives and things like this, the, it helps us. It doesn't necessarily give us the solutions to things, but it helps us identify what problems might arise when we're doing um, certain things, um, trying to come up with certain ways of helping people. Like we, we want to avoid creating uh, dependencies and things like that. We want to want to help people to um, thrive on their own. Sure. One book that I would recommend. Okay, I'll, I'll answer with three questions. What, if you could only buy one, three books, rather, if you could only buy one, I'd say Common Sense Economics: uh, What Everyone Should Know About Wealth and Prosperity by James Gortney, Richard Strope. Uh, Dwight Lee and Tani Ferrani. Um, and then another book, uh, that's a really good primer on economics. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and another one that I think is really important is Factfulness uh, by Hans Rosling. Uh, this is not an economics book, but it's more of a book on uh, statistics. And uh, that's going to make it sound dry. It's a book on uh, <laughs> facts about the world that uh, a lot of people don't know. He has a fantastic YouTube video uh, called 200 Countries in 200 Years. If anybody Googles that, they'll be able to find that video, and it just shows how um, how uh, the world has changed over the last 200 years in terms of uh, both um, uh, standards of living and life expectancy. It's a really, really positive message. And he has mm -hmm. a, a book that I use in a lot of my classes. Uh, the subtitle of the book is uh, called Books of Factfulness. 10 Reasons Why You're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Oh. And I think it's just a really hopeful message, and it contradicts a lot of things that I hear in the news and things like that. So I think there's so much bad news that we hear yeah. day to day, and this is a kind of a, a refreshing dose of optimism. Uh, yeah, I would like, uh, like to hear that too. Yeah, and then I was going to mention a third book. What was it? Um, I'm blanking on that, so I guess I will let that go. Uh, okay. Oh, I know what it was. It was Thomas Sowell's. You mentioned him earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah. Conflict, conflict of visions, ideological origins of political struggles. And it gets into just kind of two different views of mankind. One that he calls the unconstrained view, where he talks about how we're kind of a blank slate. Um, and the other being a constrained view. And the way he talks about that is where it's more like we are tragically flawed individuals we might want to do good, but we often fail and just kind of what the implications of those two worldviews okay. are. Yeah. Um, the constrained view, I think, is much more um, compatible with Christianity, um, but it, it has uh, it's a really insightful 
look at why people think the way they do and that the conclusions they reach based on which one of those two worldviews uh, they adopt really do um, they are very logical and very self-consistent and I think that's an important thing to understand if we want to engage with people about different ideas. been listening today to economist and professor of Marymount University in Virginia, Dr. Brian Holler. You can find his books and articles online and benefit from his unique Christian perspective on issues of poverty and wealth. It's been a great pleasure to discuss his life and work strongly shaped by his faith in Jesus Christ. This is your host, John Snyder. Thanks for joining us.